You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. And uh, welcome to everybody um, to this evening's event. As Jane has explained, this is part of a six-part series uh, in which we look at the Russian Revolution from many different uh, angles, um, and with two events uh, still to come. But this evening's event, I think, is quite deliberately midpoint in the series, and it's here that we circle back home and look at the Russian Revolution in relation to Ireland and the Irish Revolution and its legacy. Both of them, of course, enormously important subjects in their own right, and of fundamental importance when we see the relationship between them. And it's my particular pleasure to welcome Dr. Emily O'Connor from the Department of English and History at the University of Ulster uh, to talk to us about this uh, subject uh, tonight. Uh, Emmett is uh, uh, one of the most eminent historians of labour, labour movements, socialism, and the Irish left in uh, uh, general. Um, he did his undergraduate degree at what was then University College Galway, his PhD in, uh, at St. John's College, Cambridge, um, which was on Irish syndicalism. I think that's where we first met. That's right. Um, uh, I had the privilege of, of being one of the examples of that very fine thesis, and that was Evans' first book, which was the study of Irish syndicalism, um, that radical trade union movement, particularly from 1917 to uh, 1923, in the uh, period when Big Jim Larkin was away, uh, and looking at the foundations of that, 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 that radical moment in Irish labor history. There are a host of um, uh, articles and edited books which um, uh, uh, Emmett has been involved in since, but I would just want to draw attention particularly to two important works of, of his, books of his, A Labour History of Ireland, um, 1824 uh, uh, to 2006, um, uh, a book which was first published um, by UCD Press in 
Bolsheviks in 1918 to 1920, especially once the possibility of world revolution seemed to be fading increasingly focused attention on anti-colonial revolutions as, if you like, kind of forerunner of um, a future class revolution. So in all of these ways, it seems to me, um, the, the current interest and the current historical research is inviting us to, to make new connections between the Irish Revolution and the Russian Revolution. And so it's on that topic that I have enormous pleasure in inviting Emma to speak. Four options. You go back here. One was uh, no party politics. 
and that was identified in particular with this guy in the centre here, James McCarran. He was a tailor from, from Derry. And uh, the centenary death is coming up in October because he was lost in the mailboat Leinster, which was torpedoed in October 1918. He was on his way to a union meeting in, in London. But he usually taught the elections for, uh, for the uh, parliamentary committee. And his line was that you should wear two hats and make a clear distinction between being a Trajanist and your political interests. Politically, he was a Redmondite, and he always kept that very separate from his uh, Trajanian activities. The second option then was to, to join the, uh, the Home Rule Party and, in effect, become a kind of Labour caucus within the Home Rule Party. Um, in, in the same way as Labour in Britain before 1900 had formed the Lib Labs within the, the Liberal Party. And this is argued for best, the best known, I suppose, uh, advocate of this would be Michael Davitt, who would have been the best known Labour champion of the 1890s. But uh, John Redmond also uh, advocated that uh, possibility for, for Labour. The third option was associated very much with William Walker, who would have been the best known trade unionist in Ireland before Jim Larkin came along. And Walker was leader of the Labour movement in Belfast. He was a strong advocate of joining the, the British Labour Party after 1900. So he argued that Irish Labour and North and South could be united within the, the British Labour Party. And then the option that finally won out uh, was uh, to form an Irish Labour Party. And I think that was, that was uh, pushed over the line by uh, the growth of anarchism and also by the apparent eminence of Home Rule. It seemed that by the end of 1914 there was going to be a Home Rule Parliament in Dublin and Labour one wanted to be, to be ready for that. So I mention this because it, it shows you that for you know, about 20 years Labour was arguing about what kind of uh, political options they, they, they should take and it kind of puts the rapid politicisation of Labour um, from 1917 onwards into perspective. And of course these groups didn't just uh, disappear uh, after that 1914. You know, you still have Redmondites in the trade union congress and unionists people who thought Labour shouldn't be involved in, in politics at all uh, uh, after 1917. But the predominant faction now was certainly the, the Larkinite faction. So in 1912, uh, the Irish Union Congress uh, agrees to contest elections. And they, they finally established a, a, a new constitution and changed the name to the Irish Union Congress and Labour Party in 1914. But they created no political machinery. And this is because you had a big strike wave between 1911 and 1914, uh, what historians now call the Great Labour Unrest. And there was a lot of criticism <coughs> of the, the British Labour Party uh, during the strike wave in Britain. You had the, the, the Daily Herald Leagues representing the, the rank and file of the movement. The Daily Herald became the, uh, the paper, official paper of the Labour movement up to, I think, about 1962. But it was sold off and it changed its name to the Sun. <coughs> may have heard of it. So the argument was that the problem with creating a Labour Party is that it becomes dominated by theorists and careerists. It loses contact with the working class. So in Ireland they decided, well, we, we keep the Labour Party under trade union control by not establishing any kind of separate machinery. And of course they knew that all the, the trade unions would go Labour. So then from uh, 19, late 1915 onwards, the war started to strengthen and radicalise labour. It's very much a war of two halves from the point of view of workers on the home front. Because when the war breaks out, uh, there are food shortages, of course, um, prices go up. There's no proper rationing system. Life becomes extremely difficult for people on fixed incomes. And there's this feeling that um, farmers, shopkeepers, employers, they're doing well out of the war. They're, they're profiteering at the expense of, of workers. So by 1916, you've got hunger marches in some of the main British cities, and uh, you've got threats of strikes, and in particular, it's a threat of um, strike by munitions workers, which scares the government into liquidating national uh, assets and releasing more money into the economy, basically to sort of buy off working class dissent and keep, keep the war effort going. So from late 1916, up to uh, 1920, the uh, wages started to rise faster than prices. But the money's only there for, for, for people who can get it. And to get it, you need to join the union. 
So it's a huge increase in uh, Trajanian version. So why does this turn into support for the Baltics in the, in, in the Irish case? Well, the, the strong awareness of the, the Bolsheviks' opposition to, to the World War and support for national self-determination. So th th these are two uh, policy points that chime with public opinion in Ireland, uh, particularly after the Easter Rising. You know, they, they seem to be very much uh, complementary to, to what Sinn Féin is proposing, or, or is standing for. And then you've got this consciousness within the, uh, the, the Labour uh, party of the way that uh, uh, James Connolly had asserted the, the interests of Irish Labour on the international stage. And of course, after 1916, Connolly is Labour's national martyr. He's not really so important before the rising. Larkin is very much the main man in the movement. But Larkin's gone off to America in October 1914, and uh, after the, the rising, Connolly is you know, the, the, the national martyr. So famously, Connolly had. Uh, insisted that delegates from the Irish Socialist Republican Party to the Paris Congress of the Second International be recognised as a separate national delegation, not as part of the British delegation in, uh, in 1900. And Labour thinks, well, this is a way in which we can make a kind of unique contribution to the uh, case for uh, Irish independence on the, on the international stage. And also, uh, it, it's easy for Labour to do this if, because domestic politics is getting a bit crowded. And um, because by 1917, 1918, public opinion generally shifted to the left. There's a feeling that, you know, that the post-war world is going to be much more radical. It's going to have to be some payoff for, for Labour for its support for, for the war effort. But there's going to be no going back to the pre-1914 world. You know, to governance by the elites who blundered into this terrible catastrophe which caused the deaths of, of millions of people. So it's going to be a sort of general shift to the left. And you've got <coughs> three main political factions. You've got the Redmondites, uh, you've got the Ulster Unionists, and you've got Sinn Féin, all competing for Labour support in 1917-1918. Now, that should be an opportunity for Labour, but wasn't quite seen like that by Tom Johnson. These are the two most important people in the Labour movement uh, after that 1917. The guy on the right there, uh, William O'Brien, because he becomes head of the uh, Transport Union, which in turn becomes the most important union in Congress. So he is really the, you know, he, he is really the, the main man in the, pro in the project. But um, he, he's not really interested in anything beyond this union. He, he does, he's interested in politics. He's an old friend of Connolly's. He was a member of the Irish um, Socialist Republican Party in, in the 1890s. But he's very much focused on, on his union. I think partly because he, he's a good manager. He, he's a good organiser. He can build up organisation. But he's, he's not charismatic. He's not really very popular. He, you know, he, he controls his union, it's been said, through a reign of terror. And he's, he maintains very tight discipline over his officials. So he knows he's never really going to be a very popular uh, political leader. The guy on the left there, Tom Johnson, uh, he becomes, the, in effect, the ideologist of uh, the Trojan Congress and Labour Party. Uh, he's in a unique position because he's the only Labour leader who's not encumbered with a union job. So he's free to, uh, you know, to, to focus on politics and develop uh, policy documents and, uh, and so on. And he's very good at that. He's a very good secretary, but he's a terrible leader because he hates confrontation. He hates bargaining. Uh, it's, it's really a personal problem for him. He's sort of pushed into the position of leader of the Labour Party in the Dáil after 1922, and you know, the, the pressure gets, gets to him. In 1925, he did what I would do if I were leader of the Labour Party. He has a nervous breakdown. <laughs> He calls an emergency meeting of the Congress executive. He says, uh, look, I, I can't handle this. If you want a leader, get somebody else. And they say, no, no, you're OK. Go off and take a few weeks and come back when you think you can. There was no Alan Kelly waiting in the wings. <laughs> so uh, it's really unfortunate for Labour, I think, that Johnson is sort of pushed into the position of leader uh, at this time, although, as I say, he was a good, good secretary.
Another important influence in Congress is, and when I say Congress, I mean the Labour Party as well, because it's one and the same. The Socialist Party of Ireland, this is the best connected Marxist party in Irish history and it's almost completely forgotten about. It was a third of the name, the first was formed after Connolly went off to America in uh, 1903, 1904. Um, he comes back to America in 1910 and becomes an organiser for the party and associates himself with, with the party. Uh, and then William O'Brien tries to revive it in January of 1918. I think it's part of O'Brien's strategy of associating himself with Connolly and taking on the, the, the mantle of, of Connolly. And all of the leading people in the Transport Union, really, you know, brilliant agitators and, and organisers like uh, Patrick O'Donnell, Charlie Ridgway, they all join this, this party and it becomes a kind of party within the party, uh, it, you know, a sort of ginger group, and it sort of helps to push Congress. To the left. So this is one of the first things that the party does in response to the Russian Revolution. They call a meeting in the Mansion House in Dublin, February 1918. They um, expect a few hundred people to turn up. Instead, about 10,000 turn up, and uh, they're delighted with the response. Um, the, the, the lineup is interesting. Um, they, they mention Russian Bolsheviks there. I don't know if any Russian Bolsheviks actually turn up to speak. But you can see the way they kind of play up the kind of national dimension. Russia recognizes Ireland. Obviously, they're talking about national self determination here. Ireland responds to Russia. Here's another um, pamphlet, uh, sort of handbill from the, um, the SBI. Uh, the kind of, by this stage, the main man in the SBI is Colin O'Shannon, later judge in the, the Labour Court. O'Shannon's a keen uh, Gwilgor. Use the Irish version of the name, coming up the Heron. And you see the way they translate Soviet Republic there. Republic and Love Libra, Labour Republic. And that was how people saw it. Labour, the workers, the people, us, our crew, we're in charge of Russia. They don't really go into kind of details about Bolsheviks and Bolsheviks and all that. They're not really into that sort of detail, but is this feeling that, you know, something historic has happened, there's been a kind of a real a sort of turn of the wheel of history, and the people are in charge in Russia, and whatever mistakes they make, it's, us, it's up to us to, to support them. And then they have this quote from Trotsky, um, our France, Italy, Great Britain, the United States, willing to recognize the right to self-determination of their own destinies in the case of the peoples of Ireland, Egypt, India, Madagascar, Indochina, and other countries. So again, you know, playing up the, the sort of uh, self-determination and the sort of nationalist uh, dimension. So in 1917, uh, a foreign policy starts to take shape within Congress. In February, uh, Dublin Trades Council calls for self-determination, separate Irish representation at international labor conferences. At this time, you see, they're thinking that, that, that their moves to kind of re-establish the Socialist International. The first international had been founded in 1864. Of course, they didn't call it the first international. Collapses in the 1870s. The Central International founded in 1889. And from 1900, they're debating increasingly the possibility of war. And they're saying that if European war breaks out, we won't allow the European working class to march off and kill each other. We call it general strike. So what happens in August 1914? <coughs> Nothing. The international is in disgrace, and all that's left is an organising bureau. Now, from 1915 onwards, this bureau is, you know, trying to make itself useful, maybe trying to broker some kind of peace settlement in the war, because the war is just dragging on and on. It just seems to be war uh, without end. So uh, certainly by 1917, you know. Irish labour is very much alive to the possibility that there could be, you know, a new international socialist uh, con conference, and um, they think, well, you know, we want uh, separate uh, representation at, at this. And then after the February Revolution, Congress sends its congratulations to the Petrograd Soviet, not to the Lvov Kerensky government, but to the Petrograd Soviet. Why? Because the Soviet is against the war. That's the crucial difference. The Russian government, the Russian government wants to continue the war. 
And then there's an important debate when Congress, the Irish Trade Union Congress meets in, uh, in Derry in, uh, in August. They, ha they have this debate on whether they should send delegates to this proposed conference. And it kind of crystallizes divisions within Congress over attitudes to the war. Because you've got the Unionists and you've got the Redmondites lined up on one side saying we shouldn't send these delegates. It, it's really, a, it, it amounts to sort of treachery and betrayal of the war effort. And then you've got anti-war elements saying, no, no, we should, we should send them. So, um, by about two to one, they, they agree to, uh, to send the delegates. Conference never takes uh, place. But it's interesting that they're, they're mandated to support the Russian conference of workers and soldiers delegates war policy, peace without uh, annexations or indemnities, on the basis of national self-determination. So then, in uh, 1918, um, things start, start to quicken. Uh, in January, a joint conference SBI delegation meet Litvinov in London. He's a Soviet plenipotentiary in London. He's really the only kind of direct Irish connection with the Bolshevik Revolution, because he, he taught for three years in the Jaffe Public Elementary School in Belfast. He taught languages. And then you've got this meeting, which I referred to uh, earlier on, and then in August, uh, Congress meets in Waterford and they uh, agree to set up the Congress SBI Committee as the Irish section of the International. And by now, of course, the, um, um, certainly by September, uh, it looks as if Germany has lost the war, but there's an expectation it's going to be dragged on for about another year. Um, but there's a, there's a feeling that there's not going to be a peace based on... Um, on social justice, because this, this is an element in President Wilson's 14 points. And Tom also heard about the 14 points. He said, 10 is enough for Moses. So, but there's an expectation. It's going to be a different kind of pace. And then you've got the Berne Conference in February of 1919. So this is seen as, as an attempt to re-establish the Second International. And Labour is very keen to, to be there. And it leads to the... To the um, to the democratic program, because in February, uh, Sinn Féin go to Labour and they say, look, can you um, put in a good word for us? Can you canvass support for the Republic in Bern? Because Sinn Féin too believe that, um, you know, that the Republic can be achieved through a, an international diplomatic offensive. I mean, the IRA campaign wasn't part of the original thinking of uh, Sinn Féin in January of 1919 and the war of independence starts when Dan Breen goes off on a solo run in, in Tipperary. Appropriately called Solo Head Bay. But um, Labour says, well yeah, we, 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 we'll do that but we might be taken seriously because we don't have any MPs. They never realise they made a big mistake in dropping out of the, the 1918 general election. They say, if you adopt our manifesto as your social program when well, we can say that the Republic has adopted our social program that would help us to help you so that was the origins of the, the adoption of the democratic program people think it's got something to do with the 1980 elections and it had nothing to do with the 1980 elections and then at Bern um, the Irish delegates uh, they, they signed with the Adler Longway resolution um, and, and they, they actually vote against the motion for parliamentary democracy as it implicitly criticizes the, the Soviet system of government. So, uh, as I mentioned, you know, Sinn Féin too is very interested in this because uh, they they hope to send um, um, Gavin Duffy and Shanti O'Kelly to Paris to, to lobby at the uh, Paris Peace Conference, and uh, they hope that they, they can meet President Wilson and get into the Versailles Conference and so on, which of course doesn't doesn't happen. But there is this widespread expectation that there's going to have to be some big payback for the left in the Versailles Treaty. Uh, partly as a reward to trade unions for accepting practices like dilution to keep the war effort going, but also to keep workers out of communism. And in the heel of the Hunt, chapter 13 of the treaty, of course, set up the International Labour Organization. So that, that, that was what Labour got out of the uh, out of the Treaty of Versailles. So there were a number of other um, links with uh, between Republicanism and um, 
Soviet, um, Soviet Republic. Uh, at this time, uh, all of which helped to create a kind of supportive climate for labor links with, with Russia. And of course, the British got wind of this and um, you know, to try, try to generate some capital out of it. So by 1920, there's actually a campaign by um, British intelligence to try and depict the Irish Revolution as, as Bolshevik, and depicting famous puppets of the Bolsheviks. And in 1921, then, they, they, they published this parliamentary paper in course between Bolshevism and Sinn Féin. And Richard Dawson, he was, either, he was either a British spy or he was acting for British intelligence when he wrote that book, Red Terror and Green. I mean, that really, the, what was going on in Ireland was not so much green terror, it was actually you know, potential red terror. But then you have uh, labour retreats from, uh, from Moscow uh, after Bern. Um, there were a number of reasons for this. I mean, first of all, you had the emergence of, of the Soviets. Um, first, really big one that attracts a lot of attention is the, the Limerick Soviet. And these start to present problems to the labour leadership. They were reflective of what the communist leader called rank and file tendencies. So uh, you also have the common turn being formed, and that encourages then the formation of other left groups, because they kind of look on the common turn as a sort of crop of gold. And, and the Russians are selling uh, you know, aristocratic jewels and what have you to fund uh, Western communist parties. So in 1920, uh, there, there's a motion. Uh, well, the, the Congress executive decides that as the, the left is divided between the Second International and the Third International, and later on there was a Two and a Half International, they won't affiliate to either. And this is challenged by some delegates, and they, they lose the vote uh, two to one. And then, of course, um, in 1920, you have the slot. Which, which starts in 1920. It was kind of like 2008, if you remember 2008. Everything was going grand in the spring. And it all starts to go pear-shaped in the autumn. And by the following year, you're into a deep uh, slump. And that's, that's the way it was. I mean, after the war, you had this uh, boom, because people wanted to buy all the things they couldn't buy during the war. And labor think this is just going to roll on and on, and it's just looking very rosy. But by the end of 1920, you've got a crisis of production, and there's, uh, there's a slump and serious unemployment by 1921, and that sort of knocks the guts out of the, the radicalism of the labor movement. This is just one of the Soviets, one of the best-known ones in brewery. They, they, they use this slogan, you know, we make bread, not profits, or we make butter, not profits. Now, the Labour Party and Congress did try to continue on links with Soviet Russia, our commandant of the Soviet Foreign Ministry continued to meet labor leaders, and it's indicative of the way in which already you had this contradiction between um, our commandant and the Comintern. I, I should have mentioned that Lenin was completely opposed to the establishment of the re-establishment of the Social Democratic International. So uh, after the, um, the Berne Conference, he moved very quickly to establish the, the Comintern in uh, 1919, and they stipulated that the communists could have nothing to do with the, the Social Democrats. But you can already see this division of you know, policy lines between the common turn, which is supposed to be supporting the Irish far left and trying to destroy the Trade Union Congress and Labour Party, and our common though, which is quite happy to, to meet them. And Labour is, is keen to continue on trade with uh, Soviet Russia. It's interesting, in February 1922, Johnson and representatives of the new provisional government, and they made Cranston in London to discuss trade. When the provisional government was found, was formed, uh, Michael Collins invited Tom Johnson to nominate the Minister of Labour. It's indicative of the way in which the Republicans looked on the Department of Labour as, in effect, the Department of the Labour Party. It was really their embassy to, to Labour, to keep Labour on side during the revolution. Uh, Johnson declined that, that invitation, but you still had representatives of the provisional government willing to go along with Johnson to meet uh, the Soviet representatives to talk about trade. And both sides, they kind of blew hot and cold over, over trade links you know, throughout the, the 1920s. 
Now, look, turn it to the far left. In a very complicated situation, 1919-1920, you had really four main groups competing for Moscow's favour. You had a Socialist Party of Ireland, which is more or less controlled at this stage by Cahill Shan, which is still trying to present itself as a communist party. But it's really fatally undermined by the, the common terms decision that communist can do with the Social Democrats. You then have a group called Fiercy, the Workers' Communist Party, or the Communist Labour Party, which is more or less Sean McLaughlin, famous as the Bicomet of the Least of Week. He's promoted the Comet by James Connolly himself as the GPO garrison evacuates to Moore Street. And uh, he's, he's an excellent speaker, very good organiser, close pals with Roddy Connolly, James Connolly's son. And he's trying to promote this, this uh, far left group. He's engaged in agitation in Scotland, the, the north of England. Glasgow in particular becomes a kind of bolt hole for Republicans and, and leftists from Ireland uh, after 1916. There's a good PhD written, I think, about radical links between uh, Glasgow uh, and, and Ireland. The communist groups model themselves on the IRB, the Irish Republican Brotherhood. You know, they, they took the view that it's impossible to organise publicly and openly, and what we need to do is form a kind of secretive uh, group like the uh, IRB and infiltrate the IRA and bring them under control. So that's, that's their strategy. Roddy Connolly eventually gets the favour, uh, you know, he gets Lenin's imprimatur to form a communist party. He attends the Third World Congress of the Communist International. And uh, in September 1921, then, he, he takes over the Socialist Party of Ireland and he turns it into the Communist Party of Ireland and they're, they're affiliated to the, to the Comintern. So here we see Roddy Connolly um, at the Second World Congress in, in Petrograd in 1920. Uh, the guy on the far left there is Eamon McAlpine from, from Belfast. The, the two were at the Congress together as delegates. And they were at the back of the procession. They, they were, there's a grand procession up to, to where the conference was going to meet. They are at the back of the procession. And John Reed, who wrote 10 Days That Shook the World, recognised him. He brought him up to the front and introduced him to Lenin. So, Ronnie forms the first Communist Party of Ireland. It remains quite small. And Ronnie thinks the shortcut to power is to take over the IRA. And he expects that. There'll be negotiations on the treaty, a big section of the IRA would be disappointed by the outcome, and they would turn to the Communist Party. That's really what happened. But um, he's, he, he becomes so sort of fixated with this, he kind of neglects the, uh, he, he neglects the, 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 the party membership, he doesn't get into the sort of, uh, you know, the hard slog of building up branches and membership and so on, and a lot of members become a bit disillusioned with them. Leo Flaherty's book, uh, The Informer, is really based on the Communist Party at this time. When they, John Ford made a Hollywood film about it and he based it on the IRA. Most people think The Informer is run away from the IRA, but in the original book, The Informer is run away from the revolutionary organisation, and the revolutionary organisation is the Communist Party of Ireland. And of course, O'Flaherty was in the Communist Party of Ireland at that time. But what really torpedoes them is Larkin, because when he comes back from America, he wants to get rid of the Communist Party. So here we see Larkin, just off the, the boat train from uh, Dunleary. He's deported from America in 1923, and uh, this means trouble. You can see from this picture, uh, you know, Larkin's grandeur and why the, the Communists are, think he's, he's going to be such a great leader and he's the obvious guy to lead communism in, in Ireland. This picture, really famous picture, taken at the top of O'Connell Street, really, I think, encapsulates Larkin's great appeal. But of course, if you look at the picture, very few people are actually looking, nobody's really looking at Larkin. The band's not looking at him, but he's kind of admiring Big Jim, playing Big Jim. And the guy with the moustache there looking worried is uh, Thomas Foran. And because uh, he's, he's president of the Transport Union, he knows it's going to be trouble ahead. Partly because he, he, was, he was friendly with Larkin, but he's even more friendly with Mrs. Larkin. <laughs> now this, is, this will give you an idea of how deep the, the, um, the sort of division between Larkin and the Transport Union became. 
obviously lurking with the citizen army, and yeah, I mean, you associate commonly with the citizen army, but it's really lurking who, who you know, got, got, got organised after the lockdown, along with Sean and Casey. But here's the picture in the um, souvenir booklet bought out by, by Liberty Hall, 50 years of Liberty Hall, and you can see that Larkin is airbrushed out of the picture. It's not just crud, he's actually airbrushed. This didn't happen just to Trotsky in Stalinist Russia.
Erie is with a group of uh, delegates from uh, uh, Transport Union in the Caucasus. They're in Moscow for a conference. And you notice the way he's kind of at an angle in most of the pictures. He's an angular kind of rangy kind of figure. He always seems to be at, an odd, at odds with other delegates. The others are sort of crunched in like that, sort of <coughs> elbows out. But um, this, they, the, the Soviet Politburo discussed this oil depot in Dublin. And they took advice from Sokolov, who was soon to be appointed Soviet ambassador to, to London. The meeting was chaired by Stalin. And they agreed that they should make certain concessions with Larkin, but no deals with Larkin on the sale of oil because his reputation business was so um, unreliable. Larkin was furious at this, and he, he broke with Moscow uh, after that. If you're interested in Russian oil products, you can still uh, trade with a vestige. They eventually became Tedcastle's oil products. They're still trading as top oil. So buy your petrol and diesel and top oil. <laughs> so you've got this kind of um, grey area, sort of phony war situation. 1929 to 1932. Larkin still represents himself as a communist. He still gets emissaries from the CPGB, notably uh, Sakhid Vala, the CPG's Red Indian, as he was called. But he, um, he won't have anything to do with, with the Comintern, or the, uh, the, the Comintern set up an Irish commission based on people trained uh, in Moscow at the Lenin School, and Larkin refused to, to, to do it. They hoped that they, they could work with the Workers' Union of Ireland and turn into a communist union, but Larkin, he won't allow that. So the, um, the Comintern uh, already has decided to turn, turn to the IRA. As early as 1924, they start cutting. They realise it's going to be difficult with Larkin. We better have some kind of alternative plan B ready. So they start developing links with the IRA. I think historians wrote about this in the 1980s. Assume that this was the result of indigenous Irish politics that after the Civil War, the leftists in the IRA, people like Frank Ryan, Pat O'Donnell, felt they needed a social policy and that's why they moved to the left. But it, now that, they, that the Moscow, when the Ar Moscow archives became, uh, were opened, it was obvious that the, the communists were prompting this uh, at, at every turn. And uh, for a time, there were also links between the IRA and the, the Duper, uh, Red Army Intelligence, and the IRA supplied Red Army Intelligence with uh, information on uh, British we uh, weaponry. They eventually broke, the IRA broke with them because Razza Duper wouldn't deal with the IRA as the IRA, they, 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 they insisted on trading IRA men as just sort of freelance intelligence agents. And that wasn't good enough for the Army Council. But um, why did this, you know, why did you have this failure of social republicanism? Again, you had these arguments coming out um, in the 1980s that the two are inherently contradictory. That's why it collapsed in the Republican Congress. I don't agree with that. The contradiction was that on one hand, the Yeti wanted to publish to push Republicans to the left, but at the same time, it feared that Republicans would become. Uh, more powerful than the communists, and you'd have the communists ending up joining the republicans rather than vice versa. I think that was kind of a key contradiction in their, in their strategy. So um, during this period, after they kind of lost faith in Larkin, but they, they felt they couldn't afford to completely alienate Larkin, they still hoped they could use him as a figurehead. They tried to operate through, through fronts. This is an idea developed by Vili uh, Munzenberg, the commentator as Wunderkind, as he was called, and they, they thought it would be an effective uh, way forward to try and uh, broaden support. So by the late 1920s, early 30s, you had an extraordinary number of communist fronts in Ireland. You had about 14, I think, at one stage. So and this is Pat O'Donnell at the Creston Turn, which is another, the European Peasants Congress, another communist front. So the Revolutionary Workers' Groups then um, is preparatory to the formation of the Second Communist Party. The, the Comintern's given up on the Irish Worker League at this stage. Um, they couldn't just form a Communist Party in Ireland. You had to make sure it would be Bolshevized. And in the late 1920s, the Comintern is putting an increasing emphasis on Bolshevization. This is, this is a, you know, it's a long project to turn all these Communist Parties into what Moscow would, would regard as a proper communist, Marcus Leninist Party. So they want to ensure that the Communist Party of Ireland, when it's founded, is Bolshevized. 
and for this reason they, they invite people to their Lenin school, the International Lenin School, it's Cater Forge. These people return to Ireland and then start working towards establishing a communist party. So this marks the zenith of, of communist act activism in Ireland. The, uh, you know, the communist parties involved with struggles like the outdoor release strike in Belfast. They build up to a maximum of about 330 members. Coincides with the third period. Uh, this is a picture of uh, Sean Murray. I think this picture is taken in Middle Abbey Street. I think that's the Oval Bar just behind him. That would be late 1930s, and they used to meet there in the late 1930s. That was their sort of regular <coughs> stomping ground where they, they would have uh, public, uh, public meetings. But Sean Murray emerges as the, the kind of leading man in the revolutionary workers' groups and becomes the Secretary General of the Second Communist Party of Ireland. Now, um, briefly, um, the, the third period, they, uh, Bukharin decided that the, the first period was just after the, the revolution, was a time of advance for the left, but then that was followed by a period of stabilisation, when uh, after 1921, the left was sort of uh, pushed back a bit, but was still able to hold on to a lot of gains, so you had this kind of balance. But now, uh, because of the... Um, the rise of fascism, the economic problems in the West, the right was become more aggressive, it was going to you know, attack communism. So we're moving into a third period of hyper conflict between the right and the left. And fascism was the final twisted um, attempt by the right to survive. And communism would be sort of the last man standing on the left. So they decided ultimately you're either fascist or communist. And anybody who wasn't a communist was a social fascist. So the social democrats were called so social fascists. It's a time of extreme kind of sectarianism on the part of the communists. They kind of abandoned this the theory when uh, Hitler came to power. They, they, they thought Hitler, Hitler would get rid of the social democrats. And then the workers would get rid of Hitler. And the communists would come to power. So obviously by late 1934 that wasn't going to happen. So they, they revised their strategy and then adopted the popular front position, which meant the communists should ally with almost anybody who was anti-fascist. But what's interesting about the um, the third period in Ireland is that the the communists were the, the Eki was still willing to make exceptions for how the CP in Ireland should deal with Republicans. So even at that height of uh, sectarianism, there was still scope for modifications in the line. And, uh, you know, I think, think it's interesting. You can draw all sorts of interesting conclusions, I think, from the international communist experience, uh, about the international communist experience, what was going on in Ireland. So what's going on in Ireland is not just relevant to, to Ireland alone. People often ask, now what about the Catholic Church? Here we see the two popes at the time, Benedict XV and Pius XI. Benedict decided that... Um, the Bolshevik Revolution was actually uh, an opportunity because the Bolsheviks would get rid of the Russian Orthodox Church and the economic problems would then take care of the Bolsheviks and then we could move in and proselytize and convert Russia to Western Catholicism. So right throughout the 1920s, the Vatican is looking for a concordat with Soviet government. But in 1929, Stalin, as part of the mobilization of the five-year plan, Stalin denounces religion as petty bourgeois deviationism. Pius XI then retaliates by calling for expiatory masses to be said in all churches in the world. And that's a signal for the Irish bishops to attack the communists. So the communists really don't get a lot of criticism from the church in the 1920s. It's really 1930 that you get a big assault, which goes on until 1933. And by 1933, communism is, is really toxic in, in Irish society and politics. For the next 30 years, it's very difficult to be a communist. I put in Daniel O'Connor there because he had a centenary uh, of Catholic emancipation in 1929, and that really awoken the clergy to their power. They're really surprised at the popular and political response to celebrations of Catholic emancipation. And he told, We've got all this power, what are we going to do with it? We should use it in some way. So that's another reason, I think, why. The church uh, really became very assertive and used, I think it's sort of, it really wasn't a real threat from the communists, but they were 
they're an easy target and uh, you know they, they were something that could be used to attack to sort of mobilize people um, on things like faith and, and morals how did the Yankee control our sections initially the um, they gave the CPGB a fostering role Narkin didn't like that he objected to it strongly and got his way but after the Republican Congress in 1934 his fostering role was re-established agents sending agents directly in Dublin these were, they would have to of course to be English speakers they were usually Scots which I think was no coincidence I think the Moscow realised the Irish would find it easier to accept dictation from the Scots than from the English. Cater training at the Lennon School. From the, the Irish, per head of population, the Irish sent quite a lot of people to the Lennon School. Money. Not a lot of money, but the, the communists get maybe 70, 75 pounds a quarter, which could mean the difference between having a, a newspaper and not having a newspaper. And having a newspaper was a big deal for the communists. You know, a communist party was supposed to have a newspaper. It didn't have a newspaper, you weren't you know, doing your job properly. They had to report regularly to, to the Yeti. Uh, they had, of course, they always had an Irish commission in Moscow. Larkin wouldn't, wouldn't do this, he wouldn't report, which you know, drove, made them furious. So they were always very keen to get information on, uh, on, on Ireland. And then the, 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 it's, you know, it's important to accept as well that it was a free and voluntary. Uh, association that I mean, the, the communists genuinely believed that they were working towards a world revolution, and the, the you know the myth of Bolshevism was important. I mean, what's the point of joining a party of 100, 150 members? But if you think we established socialism in a sixth of the world and we're completing it in the remaining five sixths, well, that puts it in a different perspective. You, you can see your work as being uh, worthwhile. So you have the second uh, Communist Party of Ireland then, 1933 to, to 41. They've, they passed their peak by 1933. Of course, the big anti-communist riots in Dublin in, I think it was in March, April 1933, uh, stoked by the, by, by the clergy. So Murray doesn't want to form a communist party, and if he does form a communist party, he doesn't want to call it communist. But he's under pressure from the Eki to do this, so he's forced... To, uh, to go ahead. When the parties formed, there's reports in the Daily Mail, where else, that um, the IRA is involved in this, and the IRA issues a statement then saying, no, we're not involved. And not only did they say we're not involved, they say we would not be involved. We don't do a communism because they're anti, they're anti religion. And that was a real dagger in the heart of Sean Murray, of course, who's a former IRA man himself in Antrim. And uh, the IRA really, they, up to this, they had supported the, the communists. Um, certainly the left of the IRA had supported them against the, the clerical assault, but now they decide the communists are more trouble than their words, and they give up on the communists. <coughs> so, um, I think the fact that the IRA broke with the communists was a factor behind the Republican Congress, because the, the IRA was moving left, still moving left at this time, so it didn't really make sense for the left of the Republican Congress to break away, for Frank Ryan, Sean Murray, to, uh, Fra Frank Ryan, Pat O'Donnell to break away. The reason I think they, they did break away is that the IRA wouldn't work with the communists. And that's what Pat O'Donnell in particular wanted to do. So I think that was the reason for the president. And then, of course, when the... the, the the Congress met in September 1934 in, in, uh, in Rathbines. They split over the slogan. The slogan was always very important for communists. And you had one faction um, who wanted the Congress to commit itself to a republic. You had, uh, in fact, it was the left faction who wanted to commit themselves to a republic. You had a right faction that wanted a workers' republic. The communists were then in a dilemma because they, they didn't want to support the, the right, but they didn't want that the, the right seemed to have a more radical slogan. <laughs> so they told Dublin, the CP in Dublin, to propose um, a workers and farmers republic. So at the Congress, the, the Pablo Donald faction called for a republic, the Michael Price faction called for a workers republic, 
The common issue that stood up and called for a workers' and farmers' republic. Couldn't make this up. But of course, uh, the whole thing split and it destroyed Murray's uh, reputation. So the, the kind of great moment of glory, they were in the time of the great moment of glory of the Spanish Civil War. And that, that kind of rescued Murray for, for a time. Um, so in, in conclusion, um, you had this rapid growth and politicization in the case of labor and, and that and the nationalist connection was a reason I think why the Labour Party uh, allied with the communists. But I think they, they kind of chickened out Johnson, he just hated confrontation and having to choose between the second and the third international, that was too much for him. So they, they backed off after 1920. The far left then were very attracted to the common turn as a honeypot. Um, the common turn was enormously influential in the development of socialist republicanism. They were really sort of manipulating the thing at every turn in the 20s. And I think, you know, weighing up the, the record, the balance sheet, it was kind of largely positive for, for Irish communism. I don't think there would have been an Irish communist party throughout that period had it not been for the support of the common turn and the myth of international Bolshevism that the work you were doing in, in, in Ireland was completing the revolution in the remaining five-sixths of the rule. Thank you very much.